Today's podcast is brought to you by the Freedom Day Dividend ETF. We know Ryan Kruger very well. Ryan and his team have been managing money for private clients through many market cycles since 1996. Their strategy is focused on finding companies with the potential to increase their dividends. Now, for the first time, they're offering an actively managed ETF for investors everywhere. The ticker symbol is MBOX, M-B-O-X, as in mailbox, designed for shareholders searching for opportunities to receive more mailbox money. The fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses must be considered carefully before investing. For this and other important information about the fund, please visit freedomdaydividend.com for a prospectus or summary prospectus. Read it carefully before investing. Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk with Adrian Helfer, Chief Investment Officer of Multi-Asset at Westwood Holdings Group. We ask Adrian about his views on the expected returns on asset classes like stocks and bonds and where he's finding opportunity today. We talk about inflation and whether or not it may be more persistent, and also the government's use of fiscal stimulus and what that may mean for markets going forward. As you'll see, Adrian brings an open and flexible mindset when it comes to multi-asset class investing. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Adrian Helfer. Hi, Adrian. How are you? Thank you for having me. I don't know if you know this, but Jack and I actually both went to UConn. Uh, we were there in, together in 99, and then I was actually there in 2002. And in both those years, UConn had big upsets of um, Duke basketball. And so we always like to give people that went to Duke the ability to uh, just end the podcast now if those memories are too painful. <laughs> <laughs> actually, you know what? I'm going to stop you real quick and say... That was my graduate school. My undergraduate is at UVA, and that's in the ACC. As an ACC, uh, you know, constituent, I, I've got my first and my second, and first is the Cavaliers. So we're going to talk um, about multi-asset class investing, and I think get at some of the topics that are on a lot of investors' mind today: inflation, the increased use of fiscal stimulus, and how you go about building uh, multi-asset class investment strategies at Westwood. But before we get into that, I want to ask about your experience as a Navy combat medic. Um, I'm sure that was a very intense and high pressure job uh, at different um, points. And I just want to ask you, when you think about that experience, what are some of the biggest lessons you think you learned from that? Most certainly, thanks for the question. The older I get, the more I, the more I think back on it and appreciate it actually. I joined at 17 just after graduating from high school, so I did the Navy College Fund to, to pay for college. My mom had to sign for me to go in, so it was it was an early start. And, and you know, I learned a lot of things out of it. I do think back on it. Some of the things that I learned out of that experience or that I feel like I, I carry forward with me now are I learned a lot about just people, different people mature at different stages. Um, some people never mature. Some people that you know I considered adults, uh, they, I feel like they they hadn't matured. And you know, now that I have kids, I think about that a lot. Of different people mature, different kids mature at different ages, not just physically, but intellectually. Where the you know, the early stage gifted and talented doesn't mean that uh, the kid not identified doesn't hit the intellectual stride at 15 and 16. So there's a lot of different maturation aspects. You see it because you're you're lumped in with people that range in ages from 17 to 50, and you're required to get along and care for these individuals as a medic. So I, I found it 
very interesting on thinking about people as as different maturation stages and not categorizing them as you must be here because your age group says X. Um, I took the responsibility as a as a medic very early on, super seriously, and and I would say that you know I was I felt like I was rewarded with the satisfaction of the confidence of my peers, the confidence of at 18 years old after I had done my training and was required to be Johnny on the spot for things that might go really wrong, um, people would look to me at 18, be they the other 18-year-olds or the 50-year-olds, to um, to take a situation and break it down into its most fundamental elements and try and solve it. So early on, I learned a lot about leading by example, about taking the responsibilities that are given to you and taking them very seriously. As you know, as I've gone through my career now, I've I've definitely thought about that of when I have an opportunity, no matter how menial the opportunity and, and the responsibility of taking it seriously does often lead to new responsibilities and new offerings and rewards, be they the financial or just the self-satisfaction. Um, and I've, probably the most important is, as you were mentioning, I learned how to think and respond in volatile situations. There were a lot of volatile situations of injuries or um, places of, of high risk and a lot of that is how to lead in volatile situations. It doesn't mean that, you know, for instance, when um, we had a major injury and I was 18 years old and people would look to me for um, a solution, it doesn't mean that internally I'm not thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is going on. I can't believe what I'm seeing. It's just very much understanding that I've got to make quick decisions based on the information that I have at hand, based on that very slim mosaic set of tiles that I have and externally, I need to be the person that people look to for confidence, to be able to react to the situation well if somebody knows what's going on and somebody is gonna give me direction on call the ambulance or go get me a, a bandage. So I, I took a lot from that. It's been a long time because I was, you know, I was a very young man at that time, but of the things I took away from it, um, that's probably my, my top three. One of the common things that we see with a lot of investors is they don't necessarily come out of like a business track in school. And for you, I know you were studying um, physics. You obviously went to finance um, at some point, but you know you were sort of um, majoring in, in physics. So I wanted to ask you, when you think about sort of your investing process or how you think about investing, do you think physics influenced the way that you approach things? It, it most certainly did. And, and generally, I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting question. Some of the most successful investors are, are people that do bring a, a difference from the consensus. And I look at this, it's physics may sound uber intellectual, but history majors, engineers, chess players, pianists, uh, people like my father-in-law, I respect, who didn't have a college degree, but, but he was very confident in his own perspective. Um, the perspective that you bring is, is the most important. On the physics side, my own of I loved the field. I did not think I was headed into finance at all. I was headed to be a particle physicist. All of my internships were either in, in particle accelerators or um, in magnet labs where I once levitated a frog as part of my internship. Um, it wasn't until JP Morgan, almost out of the blue, came on campus and uh, interviewed my roommate and then uh, met me and thought I was an interesting individual and so offered me a job that I thought about taking a year off to help pay for graduate school for physics, and of course, the, as the brain drain goes, I never, I never went back. But physics, it does teach you to, I believe, uh, see mathematics and the way things operate, and look at numbers in maybe a different fashion than many other areas do. 
Um, and I'd say, you know, in comparison to places like engineering, where you're building things based out of requisite blocks, physics is very much, as is mathematics, the derivation of those blocks themselves. And so questioning the assumptions about, around the tools you're given to start from truly scratch is, is probably what I point to as the most fundamental of my thinking of when I look at the market in a particular way, I, I don't always want to take the, the consensus or the assumption is true. I want to go back and rebuild. I want to think, is the market really correct? What is, what's the market missing? Um, just for, you know, for instance, one of my one of my favorite investors, Howard Marks, he often writes about the business of investing is the business of finding mistakes in others' analysis. I think physics probably lends me towards that direction. Shifting to investing, um, you know, in, in your position at Westwood building multi-asset portfolios, you get a chance to look at all the major asset classes. And so we wanted to use this opportunity maybe to work through them individually and to sort of get your opinion on where we are and maybe what the long-term outlook might look like. And I want to start with equities. Um, you know, equities have been very interesting. I mean, we are, you probably, if, if we, you had told us, you know, in 2020 coming out of the coronavirus that we would be at the second highest cape of all time by now, you, you people probably would have thought we were crazy, but we are. And I'm just wondering how, how you look at where we are with equities right now. You know, the, the, the people who look at it from the perspective of an expected return based on valuation are saying, you know, we're in for, you know, pretty below average returns here for the next decade. But then other people are saying, you know, that this, this could go on for a long time. So what are your thoughts on equities and where we are right now? Um, well, interesting, you frame it in the, in the CAPE and the cyclically adjusted uh, PE ratio, which is that Schiller ratio adjusting for inflation. Um, I, you know, it is elevated, most certainly, and you can look to history, but let's go back to that paradigm of of just questioning the assumptions therein. I mean, there's the assumption that that you know, if we look back 70 years, that the PE is that is relevant uh, now that it was today. There's the assumption that PE is mean reverting because we're saying it's expensive relative to history, and then there's this assumption that the PE ratio is the right measure of rich cheap for the equity market. And I'd say on the first assumption, where you know, is the you know, is the 70 year old PE or 50 year old PE is it is that the right measure for us to consider today? There are other areas like consumer leverage, home ownership, uh, globalization rates that have all increased on a secular basis for the economy. So maybe there's some change in the economy that says the you know the price we put on a unit of earnings should be greater. And let's you know let's look to that and say it it has PE has been trending up though very volatile since 1950. So maybe there's something with the way the economy operates that justifies a higher per unit of earnings. Um, Secondarily, is it is it mean reverting? It has been trending up a little bit. Um, I say a little bit. It's very it's a very volatile measure, or it can be a very volatile measure, um, just certainly through corrections and and exuberant reactions to the market. I think like we're seeing now a little bit. So it's not so much mean reverting. I think it's reflective of other long term trends, and it's on us as investors to say, are there long term trends we can identify that maybe change our outlook on PE ratio? One of those, certainly to me being interest rates and this, you know, this multi-decade uh, drop in, in long-term interest rates has been something I think that's reflected in the discounting of cash flows. So that may help elevate PE and keep it at an elevated rate. Um, finally, is PE the right measure? I do believe earnings are the right measure, but the constituents of earnings may have changed a bit. Um, I think most importantly, you know, for that, because there are investors like myself that use a, a differentiated uh, price to earnings ratio or a different style of earnings in that, but just looking at the timing of future earnings, whereas, you know, in fixed income, we use something called KRDs, which is um, the key rate durations or the, the timing of of a, a duration. 
on cash flows, you know, I'd, I'd like to point to something that I do use, which is more um, the key, a key cash flow duration, where the timing of the receipt of long-term earnings or cash flows requires you to think about the discounting rate on those cash flows. And as it does, that may change when interest rates change. So you have sensitivities out there that are not not necessarily exuberance or reflective of rich cheapness of, of equity markets, which means then, you know, as an investor, I'm going to look and differentiate and say, maybe those near-term cash flow companies, which are less assuaged by the possibility of interest rates rising, are not so rich versus those longer-term companies, which have this inherent risk involved in them, which is the key cash flow duration. And that key cash flow duration may require more risk when interest rates rise or fall, they're going to be more volatile and change. So there's a deeper understanding at the at the headline level. Um, yes, we are at an elevated place. Can we remain in, a, in an elevated place? I, I do believe we can. I think we are in a, a longer term cycle of um, appreciation of some of these dynamics that have been risk sharing in the economy, as well as a longer term lower rate scenario that can support a higher uh, PE for some time. It's interesting. You make a really important point. We had Jim Misterzo of uh, Research Affiliates on the podcast, and you know they put out their projected returns of three to four percent or something like that. And he was talking about how you know people don't understand how many variables go into that, and you just alluded to a lot of that. I mean, that's not like some sort of exact calculation of you know what might happen in the future. There's a million things that can change that. Like you said, what what PE are we mean reverting to? Are we going to mean revert? How fast are we going to mean revert? You know, so it's it's interesting that there's there's just so much that goes into this that you know I, I don't know how much how valuable those returns are in terms of investors making decisions today about what they're going to do. Truly. And, you know, it's, you look around at other comparable markets, real yields are really negative right now. Real yields on inflation-linked bonds that give you an idea of the potential growth rate of the economy. Um, and, you know, we, we can talk about that prospective returns from, a, from PE ratios. Are, they've, they've already been signaling lower prospective returns for some time now. And that it hasn't necessarily materialized. What has materialized is a spike in earnings, which, you know, if you look at just since the beginning of the year on the S&P 500, I think we started the S&P 500 around uh, 23 times on forward earnings and we're, we're down to around 21 and a half. So that doesn't mean that the market's dropped. The market is pushing new highs. It just means we've realized some of that earnings. Shifting to uh, how, how you guys think about picking equities in general, I'm wondering if you could sort of just classify how, how your investing style is and how you look at selection of equities. Sure. Um, we, we do look across whether it's a, a growth style or a value style or, or generally core. We look at all sectors. So remaining agnostic about the entirety of the market is important. We've generally favored companies for which we have a fundamental basis for it, the earnings profile or investing. We're not looking for, or, or sometimes we're looking to throw out those companies which have peak exuberance on something that is unrealized. Um, much of our, our portfolio and the way we invest is higher quality and more value oriented. That's a style that we're using right now, but that changes over the, over the time as the market changes. It was the opposite last year as we looked for uh, more of a growth style because of technological transition and others. Um, we have liked medium-term thematics as well, with, but these are things with predictable earnings streams. We are we're fundamental by nature. I'm sure we're going to miss opportunities in uh, some of you know things like the new IPO market, where you have companies that are coming out that are valued on an extraordinary measure to let's say comparable. Uh, electric vehicle manufacturers, but they don't have realized earnings and they don't have prospective realized earnings for many years. And it's very difficult to calculate how that might look and what their opportunities are. 
we are we're moving away from those kind of lottery ticket things which will impact the market and looking for things that have a predictable fundamental analysis profile um, there are upsides and downsides where we're going to win on our holdings is we're going to win on our ability to project that revenue stream better than others on the upside or the downside via risk avoidance or uh, risk appreciation we tend to be value investors ourselves and you know one of the things we've struggled with in recent years is this idea that maybe fundamentals are mattering less in the market um, you know you've seen you've seen a lot of things going on in the market that are that are maybe less tied to things like value and quality and you know if you think about Graham's idea of the voting machine versus the weighing machine there's maybe been a lot more voting going on in recent years than weighing I mean do you think there's any any case to this idea that maybe fundamentals are less important or we're going to go through these longer periods where fundamentals don't matter um, relative to what's going on in history I, you know, I think it requires us to, I do think about this a lot. I think it requires us to um, be out of the box thinkers more of, let's just take, let's take um, Tesla as a, as a microcosm there, where Tesla is a company that of course manufactures electric cars, but their revenue streams are, and one reason it might be priced the way it is, is because their revenue streams are uh, multiplied in areas that we're not really considering, maybe energy storage, maybe a new battery technology for which they patent. Maybe actually in renting out there's those charging machines that sit along the side of the road to other EV manufacturers. And so there are other there are other potentials for them. It you know, on these other companies where you look and you go, gosh, I cannot identify how in the world this company is gonna be worth as much as it is, even if all the cars in Blade Runner 2054 have Tesla on the side. Um, it is definitely looking out of the box. We've seen technological transition. We're pulling forward usage of uh, Zoom and other technologies like the one we're on now for um, for remote conversation, as well as you know, many other areas that the economy is transitioning pulled forward because of COVID. Um, so we are we're being tasked with thinking, I think, a lot more about transition and possibility. So yeah, it is it is very difficult to um, get our head around when I you know I I can't really build that much of a model that says you know based on the existing inputs and the earnings profile and and the expense ratios. This is what this company is worth. You have to think much more out of the box on some of these, which for a value investor is is very hard. A value investor is looking more at realizing cash flows in the near term that are already identified. And that's, that's becoming, I think, harder in the growth paradigm. Do you, do you think the traditional standard valuation metrics, I mean, do you, do you think those are still going to work going forward? Obviously, we went through a decade here where, you know, most of them, particularly price to book, didn't, didn't work out very well. I mean, do you think those are still going to work going forward? Or do you think we maybe have to rethink the way we value companies? Uh, well, on the margins, I think we'll rethink, but I, I don't want to say too much this time is different because I was around and investing during that time of the, what was it, the, you know, the price per click and the various other things we saw during the, the tech bubble. Uh, no, I think the, the existing paradigm is, is a long-term one of looking at how much you should get, how much you should pay per unit of earnings profile. Things might change secularly. We might see a rise in that from changes in the economy or changes in, um, how much you might want to think forward on your, your discounted cash flow model or in the earnings, how you actually think about that. Do you want to do it something where you've got much, much larger intangible values uh, as part of your price to book value? Now you could you could change your measures to reflect that. But I I don't want to say that we're, you know, we're going to chunk that entire measure out because it's no longer relevant and we're going to be looking at something that, is, that has changed simply because we've seen that movie before. Um, in the end, we should be paying for earnings. We should be paying for cash flows that we may receive in the future and expect to receive in the future. It's our job as investors to then say how much 
those cash flows are going to rise. So when the future occurs, how much are we going to receive? Speaking to, on the issue of low expected returns, one area that many people, myself included, have pointed out is, is a place to maybe get higher expected returns is maybe going internationally, you know, emerging markets or just developed international. And, and I'm wondering, what do you think about that? I mean, you know, on the surface, the PEs, you know, seem a lot lower there, but we had, uh, we had Kevin Carter who uh, manages a, a growth emerging market fund on, and he, and he pointed out to me that, you know, you've got a lot of, in, in those PEs, you've got, you know, a lot of sectors you may not want to be investing in or state-owned enterprises or things like that. So how do you think about international and emerging markets right now? I, I have been thinking of, of them as very attractive, certainly the emerging markets. It's, it's hard for me to extract from that, that traditional paradigm of, gosh, this, you know, this fiscal stimulus that we've been giving, um, this potential for you know, a longer term low rate, which leads to a yield seeking environment, that generally is a, is a good environment for emerging markets to perform. Now that's not at all what we've seen. Obviously emerging markets are near flat on the year with, a, with an extraordinarily rising S&P 500. Um, I think you know, a lot of it is related to the COVID vaccination rates and the supply chain problems that we've had that have uh, caused maybe you know, consternation and concern there. So yes, I think that the, the rooster will come home to roost for them of uh, the traditional economic relationships and them being a beneficiary as exporters will happen. And that I believe that will happen in 2022, where we could see strong performance and should see strong performance from the emerging markets. Now, granted, if you look at the, you know, the index of the MSCI EM, it's 35 odd percent China. So this is heavily weighted to what happens in China, not just because China is such, it's the world's largest constituent of, of growth. It's because China is a large portion of the index itself and what happens with Chinese companies and Chinese regulation, as we've seen, becomes one of the key determinants of the performance of the overall index. I, you know, so you, you almost have to make a statement on China when you talk about the emerging markets themselves. And with China, you know, at a, at a headline level, I find it hard to believe that that they are going to stifle this long running move towards a little bit more capitalism, especially when their president would like a third term very explicitly and would like to have some sort of Chinese dream. I think it's just a um, it's a control element that we have seen, not just with some of the tech companies, but broader as well to say, yes, we are going to include the middle class. And as we include the middle class, we're going to try and create a China that is a consumption uh, I don't know about lead, but at least a, a more consumption economy than they have been in the past, uh, which then leads us to if we have China with as large as they are, with a middle class that is burgeoning as consumption oriented, that's really going to benefit Latin American exporters. That's going to benefit uh, some of the other East Asian uh, emerging markets. So I, I think longer term, there's a great potential there. We've, we've got some volatility elements and some catalysts to work through. Um, one of those will be certainly China and what happens with uh, regulation there and just seeing that that assumption is correct. One of those is simply working through some of the supply chain and the, and the COVID vaccination rates earlier in the year where uh, pretty much any American, if you wanted to get vaccinated, you pretty much could go to a CVS or you could find a place to get vaccinated. They're, they are, are available. So our vaccination rates were, were strong for those that wanted to get vaccinated. Um, in in emerging markets, it has not been the same. Where now, when you look at Latin America, Latin America is up around 60% vaccinated. So that's, I think that's a positive movement. We do have some supply chain elements we need to work through so they can realize effectively their revenue streams. Um, areas, you, you do point to something interesting, which is 
there is a divergence between sectors. There's a, a, a divergence between uh, the quasi-sovereigns or the, the state-owned enterprises and how those will perform with, with leveraged economies. I, you know, I think probably the place that you're going to want to look to most is going to be the, the non-state-owned enterprises at this point. There's still a lot of political risk, certainly in some of the Latin American countries. And you know, within some of the, the strategic areas as well, like energy, we're more domestic-oriented as opposed to emerging market-oriented. International, um, you know, I think there's, there certainly is the positivity that we could have from uh, the Eurozone coming out. I mean, they have they've given the indication, as as did the UK last week as well, like the Fed, that um, they're going to be more dovish. They're going to keep the punch bowl a little further. But uh, but I think it's you know we're still looking for domestic for United States growth. I mean, it's interesting that this this extraordinary equity market that we've seen is something like you know two thirds of the equity wealth created has been in the United States. It's been an extraordinary rise in how much the U.S. has outperformed versus our our uh, developed market peers. At some point, that that may shift, but I don't look for that in the near term. I, I think we're still leading the pack. Do you do you believe the U.S. does deserve a long term premium in terms it deter, it uh, deserves to trade at a higher multiple than than international and emerging markets? You know, there's been a debate about that. Some people think you know this is a short term thing and it's going to revert back, and some people think you know we we really you know as as the center of growth in the world, you know, we really do deserve that long term premium. What, what do you think about that? Uh, I think that you know as a global reserve currency as um, more protected, yes. We, well, I think it's a reduced risk premium, if I think about it like that. Um, so does that, does that mean we should trade at a more of a premium because our, our multiple is higher, we have a reduced equity risk premium? I think there's some justification to that, that it's, it's a trust factor. And while right now we have more trust, we are still a global reserve currency, uh, people look to us not only as a place of investment, but at times as a safe haven as well. Just the same reason you see flows into the U.S. dollar when when things go awry. Um, so I I think there is some justification for that, and, but it's based on a, a reduced risk premium, an equity risk premium in the United States um, over emerging markets. Moving over to the fixed income side of things, which we know is an important asset for a lot of investors. And people hold a lot of fixed income in their portfolios. But when you look at where current yields are, you know, it's, it doesn't look like future returns for fixed income are going to be very good. Um, so how are you viewing that or thinking about where we stand today in fixed income and how you're managing your multi-asset class portfolios? Sure. Well, you, I mean, you're right to point out that um, the fixed income yields, especially the intermediate yields, like the 10-year U.S. government bond, is and has long been like a prognostication factor for economic growth and subsequently for potential equity market returns. And with the 10-year yield running at, you know, it's been ranging now, it's sub 1.5 now at like one, you know, 1.47 the last I looked. Um, does that then tell us we are in for a prolonged period of low growth and subsequently low equity market returns? Funnily enough, we haven't seen that. We've actually seen that we've had low yields, and gosh, look what a year we've had. Uh, it's pretty extraordinary. So maybe there's some offsetting effects there that that uh, the low yields themselves are keeping the punch bowl at the party. They are they are doing what the portfolio balance channel would tell us is supposed to happen, which is as long as monetary policy authorities are keeping the front end low, which is what they do, then it's going to keep uh, intermediate yields, discounting yields, reasonably restrained. 
And me as an investor or a saver is going to push me out of my savings and into riskier activity like equities and, you know, in the full portfolio balance channel. Um, so I, I don't think it's as descriptive as uh, we, you know, over a long term would like it to be to say, well, the, you know, the 10 year U.S. Treasury yield is a um, is a proxy for for real growth. We're, we're not seeing that right now. I think what is happening as a dynamic is, yes, we have a very low yield. And it's likely to stay low. If I look at the forward curve, you can go to the market and you can say, what does the market expect? And lo and behold, it's, it's priced in the market. The market does not expect the 10-year yield to go above 2% for over two, the next two years, which is, is pretty incredible. And by the time we get there, two years hence, the, the difference between the 10-year yield and the two-year yield is right now priced to be around 45 basis points. So it's almost as if, we're on that tail end of an economic cycle. We're getting some exuberance. We've got a 10-year a, a uh, yield that is about uh, a little over 100 basis points over the two-year yield. And if, if you know that theory, that theory is that as the 10-year yield and the two-year two -year yield collapse to zero, then therein lies the, the major recession risk. So you hit a recession uh, every time in the last, I believe it's eight times now that we've crossed over that threshold. I'll digress and say, funnily enough, that we did go to we we went below zero, where we had a negative yield curve, where the ten-year yield went below the two-year yield, just be, just before COVID. Though, in some sense, you could say that the the Treasury curve implied that COVID was going to happen, or that we had a recession from that. Um, but coming back to it, I'll say that yes, Treasury yields are important. I think they give us a very good indication of the cycle. I'd say maybe more important is the Treasury curve itself, the difference between the ten-year and the two-year yield. Now, I think we can have decent equity market returns in context of a low equity, a low treasury yield environment, partially because um, it pushes that portfolio balance channel for investors that are sitting on an extraordinary amount of cash right now and wealth to invest in riskier activity than U.S. Treasuries. And what we'll, what we'll continue to monitor is what is that treasury curve telling us about the uh, extenuation or uh, the timing of the cycle that we're in. Are there areas of the fixed income market that you are finding opportunities in? Uh, definitely. Uh, you know, we're seeing that with, where loan growth is doing well, loans, so leveraged loans are generally a floating rate instrument and they're, they're based off of short-term uh, interest rates and investors are investing a little further in those. That's kind of riskier activity. These are usually high yield companies. Um, but because it's a floating rate note, you have less interest rate duration. You are not as concerned of yields rising. So there is a concern right now of if we see inflation, if we see uh, especially inflation with economic growth, then we could see yields rising and your, your bond might not do well, even as the company does well. Loans don't have that issue. If companies do well, you're not going to be concerned about interest rates rising uh, because of that floating rate nature of them. So those are an attractive asset class, and we'll see flows into that. We'll see investment into that. And I anticipate we'll see more companies issue into that or borrow in that area. Um, other areas of, of markets, we are seeing very compressed yield spreads for investment-grade corporate bonds and high-yield corporate bonds. If we look at a, a histogram, we often look at the, the histogram of, of where we are on a spread basis relative to 15 or 20 years of history. Well, looking at the last 15 years of history of where spreads are, how much compensation you have 
for default risk in an individual corporate, there's only about 10% uh, of the time right now in investment grade where spreads are tighter than they currently are. In high yield, it's about 15%. That there's only about 15% of the time that they are tighter. So we are at a very, for history, we are at a very low compensation point for the amount of default risk that you have in your bonds. You're not getting paid much for lending, effectively. Um, it's hard to get too exuberant in an environment like that for, for corporate bonds. There are certainly um, those that we find attractive and we're looking more increasingly for catalyst in corporate bonds, things where we've got a, a recognizable, definable event that is uh, we may see them announce a new leverage target or there's an upgrade potential or there's a spinoff capability that will that will increase the, the safety of the balance sheet. So increasingly, we're looking for catalysts in other areas to provide us with the upside, upside as opposed to just pure economic growth and tightening of spreads, because I, I think we're there. Um, other areas, certainly, you know, when we talk about the housing market, the housing market, you know, hopefully you all own, all own a house because, my gosh, it's been a, a very uh, excited housing market on the back of dropping mortgage rates, increased mobility, um, the supply element of housing has been, we came into the crisis where it was very low. So we had very low supply, yet you had a lot of people that could either buy second homes or found they could work from anywhere. Um, and all of a sudden they could buy more house because mortgage rates were lower. Um, when we look at some of the securitized opportunities, areas like non-agency residential mortgage bonds, um, we feel that there's, there's still some upside capable there. There's still a, a less appreciated asset class for which the, the so-called default adjusted yields provide a decent upside, um, but these aren't highly liquid areas. They're not, they're not areas for your individual investor. They're areas for, for professional investors uh, that you find in, in certain funds. They're, they're more difficult to get uh, access to if you're just an individual investor. For the first time in a long time, we're actually seeing signs of inflation, actually quite high inflation. Um, and so the question is, I think the big wild card is, is this inflation going to be longer lasting and persistent and maybe higher than average? Or is it going to be transitory and temporary? Are we going to work our way through some of these supply chain issues and it's going to kind of level out? So just generally, what are, you, what, what, what are your thoughts on inflation here? Definitely. I, you know, when we heard, when we heard uh, the Fed chairman speak last, I think he almost regrets the transitory kind of comment because it gets away from the main issue. The main issue is the Fed doesn't feel like it's permanent. It's not transitory in the, in the sake of the, now the entire market questioning, well, does transitory mean three months? Does it mean six months, nine months? Um, what he was just trying to get is a simplicity of there are issues being worked through from the economy and labor and supply chain and uh, semiconductors that, that need to um, relax some before we see lower inflation metrics. I, I do generally believe that we are not in a long-term secular uh, higher inflation economy or, or a super high inflation economy. That means that, you know, we have less of a concern around uh, the uber inflation impacting housing markets and real assets and other areas. But at the same time, there are some cheap inflation hedges. There are areas where I feel like I have some of my cake and I eat it too. That's primarily in the equity markets. The fixed income markets, I think there's asymmetric risk reward for the for the risk that, that we do see higher inflation. Um, but in the equity markets, there are areas that that we see real assets that will appreciate on inflation. And should we not see higher inflation, should we see controlled or uh, transitory inflation to go back to the, the nomenclature, then 
you know, I, I think we're going to have less of a concern. We're going to see the equity market upside on fixed income. You know, we still see very negative real yields. It's hard to go buy treasury inflation protected securities as my upside, my systematic risk upside for higher inflation when you have such negative real yields. And the other thing is, I mean, it's the Fed and it's often said in the markets, don't fight the Fed. If the Fed says it's going to be non-permanent, they have the ability to at least try and make it non-permanent. They can pull the punch bowl, they can rise rates, they can increase the rapidity of the, the taper and do other areas that would effectively retrench economic growth from the environment and reduce inflation. So I think that's, you know, that's one reason why we saw them make that change of average inflation targeting is they see the risk of, of uh, higher inflation, of running a little bit higher inflation as far outweighed by the possibility that we would see uh, stagflation where they pulled a punch bowl too much or too early and we see uh, inflation still continuing because of the, some of these core issues, but we see low economic growth. That's very damaging for uh, for the consumer or certainly even by the risk of, of a deflationary environment, which is a scary one where we have you know lower, lowering economic growth and then because of that we have a demand uh, demand led deflationary environment. So suddenly your you know your loans, are you know they're well more than your actual assets are worth on your house for instance so i i think the fed sees it that way of letting inflation run a little bit hot is far outweighed by these other risks but when it does actually run hotter than they remain comfortable with or we see it, enough economic growth then they have the ability to control it long the long story short of yes i see that we're going to go through some inflation i think it's going to scare some uh some inflationistas but at the same time, I don't see it as secular or long-term. I, I think there's longer-term trends in the economy that will keep us compressed. Another big thing that's actually changed in the last 15 months is the government's increased use of fiscal stimulus. So coming out of the great financial crisis, obviously it was much more monetary uh, stimulus driven by the Fed lowering rates, quantitative easing, but that money wasn't necessarily finding its way back into the economy. Now with fiscal stimulus, um, you know, the hope is, is that that will find its way to more people and back into the economy. So how are you thinking about the increased use of fiscal stimulus? Uh, number one is, I mean, that's an interesting area for which I don't think we have ever in our investing lifetimes seen this level of coordination between monetary policy, the central bank and fiscal authorities, the treasury, um, in coming together to uh, reduce risk from a systematic event. I think, you know, when we you, know, you talk about the global financial crisis, that was by and large monetary policy authorities, but it was a lower level and then a lot of heated discussion around the, the fiscal element and TARP and the other things that we did at that point. Um, this is full on coordination. And so maybe that changes a little bit the response function of overall authorities to new systematic crises, crises that we have in the future. Maybe that was the first time coming in the global financial crisis and then it was just exacerbated by the, the, the great virus crisis. Um, so that is something that investors should think of. Maybe there's a, a new playbook and understanding the playbook of history helps you understand what might happen quickly in the future. For instance, when, of course, that March 9th week kicked off of, of the markets took a, a real big downturn from concern around COVID, um, understanding the old playbook, you would have known that the Fed was going to go buy mortgages and reduce volatility off of private balance sheets. You might not have seen they were gonna buy corporate bonds um, but they, you know, it was reasonably understandable of what they were going to do. We just extended that out. Now, 
in this new uh, fiscal paradigm, of course, it's it's a much sharper tool than monetary policy. Monetary policy is we're going to go out and give a lift to asset prices. We're going to try and produce a little bit more of the wealth effect and the portfolio balance channel in order to incentivize um, continued risk taking or at least support of of the wealth effect in the economy, which means that virtuous cycle hopefully continues. But it's a it's a dull knife where a sharper knife is fiscal and it allows a, a current administration to kind of gear towards the kind of projects and growth that they would like to incentivize for growth. Um, for instance, now in fiscal policy, of course, we're seeing this push towards green energy and, and green projects and that push towards green energy and green projects does uh, allow the, the administration to say this is where they think they're going to see the growth in the U.S. economy. But it's not, this is not a wealth channel or a, a portfolio balance channel. They're pushing for something specific. Investors need to maybe think a little bit more granularly on that to understand where growth opportunities may lie. And, and they're going to be uh, beneficiaries and they're going to be um, those, that, those that have a bad reaction on this, the non-beneficiaries. Those may be either traditional energy or projects that won't get funded as much as as a traditional, but investors should be looking at this as a way to differentiate and to invest for individual idiosyncratic risk or or sector selection as far as where's the money going to go, which is different than a monetary policy experiment. You, you mentioned the idea before of inflation hedges. And, you know, one of the things we've seen is I think on a risk adjusted basis, we've seen probably the best decade ever for the 60-40 portfolio recently. But with, with, with expected returns low and with the potential of inflation on the horizon, you're seeing a lot of people now saying, all right, we need to incorporate alternative asset classes. You know, stocks and bonds aren't enough anymore. You need commodities. You need gold. And I'm just wondering how you think through those asset classes and, you know, the potential to put them into a multi-asset portfolio. I, you know, I would agree with, with those that say that. Uh, the, the traditional matrix of, well, you know, for for this kind of outlook, you need to have a 60-40 or, or something that includes this level of bonds. And of course, you know, as a old school bond investor as well, the, the percentage of a bond isn't really ever what's important. It's the amount of interest rate sensitivity, the, the duration that you have. Um, so I think that now that we are at a point where the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield and that and that uh, that minor viewpoint is so low, that Treasury yields are so low, that corporate yields are so low, now uh, the asymmetric risk return profile of those is just that you're going to want to capture more of your income element from either the equity market or commodity yields, uh, even gold, where you can get some of that systematic protection as well. Um, so I, I am an investor across all of the asset classes. You, I mean, as a multi-asset investor, of course, I'm looking for things that can I can add in that will decorrelate, that will you know push me out that, that Markowitz frontier to the to the best uh, reward per unit of risk. And in commodity markets, they can provide some protection should we see a high inflationary environment. They're cyclical. So should that come with a growth off, a stagflationary environment, that could be that could be very uh, damaging. But in you know in a current outlook where you've got decent economic growth and the potential for inflation, I think it's a it's a good place to have some allocation on the gold side. Uh, gold has historically been a store of value, of course, and it's potentially a systematic risk hedge. Uh, we saw some of the gold companies that that doubled or near doubled their value right around the the COVID crisis because it was a it was a store of value and a systematic hedge. Uh, those are the gold miners, and that's when I actually talk about well, you can own a systematic hedge that pays an income. I mean, how often can you have an insurance policy that you get paid for? 
not many markets in the U.S. Treasury markets. I'm not I'm not throwing it out completely because in the U.S. Treasury markets, there's nothing that says we can't go down to absolute zero on a 10-year U.S. Treasury, which means you've got an insurance policy which potentially pays you as long as it performs. Uh, but I think the symmetry is best found elsewhere for some of the systematic risk, especially because I, I think the bias is for uh, economic-led inflation. And if that happens, U.S. Treasuries aren't going to help you. But gold will potentially provide you with it, with a, gold miners could potentially provide you with a decent income. The balance sheet of these companies is, is in most cases, it's uh, consistently better than your broad S&P 500 company. At the same time, you might look to commodity markets, which will give you a, a bit of the inflation sharper knife hedge against some of those risks. Uh, one of the things I always like to ask people who build multi-asset portfolios, and this is, this is not trying to predict where it's going to go in the future, but is the issue of Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrencies. Just from the perspective of you're building multi-asset portfolios, and we have this new asset that's come on the scene that you know many people are using. It's probably not ready for prime time in terms of you know the types of portfolios you're running, but just how do you think through like an asset like that that comes on the scene and whether in the future you know it might make sense for the types of things you're doing? I, I like Bitcoin. I like what uh, I should say the blockchain, really. I like the technology. I like the idea that, you know, what gold is, let's go back to gold for a second. Gold is a finite amount. It's a finite value. It's a finite uh, store of value. And that's why people put their money there. It's not perfectly finite. They could dig and they could find more, another Olympic swimming pool or, you know, which, whichever it is. Uh, Bitcoin is very defined or, you know, that, that implementation is very defined on how much is there. That doesn't mean there's not a host of other things. There's only one of those, you know, the dirty spoons I just ate my soup with upstairs. That doesn't mean it is worth a lot of money, but confidence in an individual um, platform like Bitcoin may mean that's an area that people put their store value confidence in. If it is uh, easily uh, fungible or transactable, or at least reasonably fungible and transactable. So there is a, a potential um, store of value usage there. It doesn't have a cash flow. Uh, it could lose its confidence. It could be regulated. Um, there's a lot of concern about about what happens if Bitcoin gets regulated for how it's, it gets transacted. But if you look back to gold, gold was at one point outlawed um, many decades ago, and then the subsequent two years, it, it just about tripled in value. So I, I don't think regulation is the key scenario here. And I think they're going to be reluctant to, the authorities will be reluctant to over-regulate um, a potential transformation in, in digital currency. So I, I think that there is a place for investors here. You very much said it well, which is um, just around the amount of volatility that could be felt there as it gets adopted or there are new implementations that become adopted, which means you know you find your point on the on the blockchain to invest or, or diversify yourself along the blockchain. I think the technology is uh, real. I think it's still underappreciated as far as where it could find its its inroads and its potential, and some of those could be cash flow producing, um, but it's it's hard to invest in something that has as much potential volatility as that does, and the kind of portfolios that are more balanced level multi asset portfolios. I think it's still kind of a hedge fundy instrument for those that are able to tolerate that level of volatility, and there will be you know there are implementations where you can you can own. Um, you know, some of the larger banks that are allowing transactions or allowing storage from their wealth clients in Bitcoin, you know, that's one way to do it. It doesn't capture the full beta of Bitcoin itself, but but I think it's a I think it's a useful instrumentation or an implementation of, of the blockchain 
I think the blockchain being the most important part, I think that's transformational and digital currency is, is here to stay. So investors should should find that thematic in their portfolio and, and pick and choose it, but it's still volatile. Do you, do you think if we, as we look like five to 10 years out, I mean, do you think it'll be part of like your standard multi-asset portfolios to have these cryptocurrencies in there? Uh, I do. I think it's, uh, as I said, I think it's underappreciated and it's, it's still one of those things where two years ago had, had you asked the same question around cannabis, then cannabis is one that, um, you know, two years ago I was saying, you know, I think in five years we're going to see federal legality. This is, this is where you see the populace start to, uh, have adoption and the, the popular opinion, regardless of your political affiliation is such that, that it's an investable or that's sorry, that it should be legalized. Um, all of a sudden now we see just today that there's a, there's a potential, there's a, a Republican, uh, sponsored bill for some legalities around it. And that's why we're seeing such a, a spike today. I think things, once they start the, the role, they can move faster. So I just use that as an example, um, Bitcoin or, or blockchain implementation of a digital currency. We're getting there on the adoption. Um, I do believe that it's here to stay. I can't promise it's the Bitcoin um, as there's, you know, there's some knocks against it. Maybe Ethereum is the better one for um, the ability to trade contracts in other areas. But uh, as I say, it's, it's not my expertise, but I see that there's a, a, a thematic that is real there that investors should think, how are they invested in it, even if tangentially from, from other investments. The last two questions I wanted to ask you, um, the first one is about the balancing of systematic modeling versus human discretionary decisions within multi-asset class portfolios. Do you tend to lean more heavily towards one? Do you use a balance of them? Like how do you how do you use these two approaches of investing when you're actually building investment strategies? I'm I'm definitely a blended guy. As an old physics major, of course I, I love data. I love the ability to look for um, an unbiased opinion before I start to get around using my own human subjectivity. And so this is almost a, a platform I stand on of saying, I, you know, I think too many investors start with human subjectivity and bias and, and find themselves cornered into something that either they don't believe in or they're, they're pushing their own opinion in a way that they're, they're justifying their own opinion. I think the starting point is often systematically looking for an unbiased opinion of where opportunities might lie, of pointing yourself in a direction to say, um, if it is at odds with what your human subjectivity says is a potential outcome, then maybe you should question your assumptions. And so I, I do very much like using data and systematic processes where I possibly can, not the least because it's efficient and it allows me to look at a whole host of opportunities very quickly and ideally point myself on the direction of where those individual opportunities lie. But like on a portfolio level, being able to use uh, the combination of, I call it the combination of the objective and the subjective. The objective is we have all this data out there now that's proliferated massively in the last 10 to 20 years, not just in liquid asset classes. I can find data on uh, trading bankruptcy claims now that is systematic level data. Um, I can use a lot of this in a way that says, okay, well, I can look at the variance of these things, the volatility. I can look at the correlation of these things together. I can build a good portfolio, but I do also want that subjectivity. I have, I have human insight. I have bias. I just want to use it in the most appropriate place. So, you know, for instance, in, in our models, we do look instead of using uh, something like just a standard modern portfolio theory optimization, 
we're using a black Litterman style model, a, a modified black Litterman model. What that means is that that we are taking that data into account. We are looking at correlations and variances and covariances to say, how much should we have on this on a risk adjusted basis? And we're combining that with our insight on, do we think that there is opportunity in this area? Is regulation going to drive something that is an upside opportunity that we're not going to see in the data? And we can overlay those two things and say, this is the best portfolio that reflects our opinions in a way that brings a portfolio together and reduces the risk and, and increases the outcome. So I, I believe very heavily in, in combining systematic uh, insight with human subjectivity. Uh, it's just, you know, the, the biggest piece of that is you want to re remove the human bias where the human bias isn't helpful. You want to point to a lot of opportunities where you can. Um, and then you want to get down to those areas where you go, okay, I'm going to sit down now, now that it's pointed to something, and I never would have considered this company because, oh my gosh, I've heard about them on CNBC but it's pointing me to where there's value, I'm going to question my assumptions and I'm going to go revisit and uh, maybe find myself an opportunity. And lastly, our standard closing question is based on your experience in the market, if you could impart one piece of wisdom or teach one lesson to the average investor, what would that be? Uh, good question. Do I have another hour here? Just kidding. Uh, no, I, uh, everything can be analyzed and and when I mean, you know, people are often looking and going, but I, I just don't have the time to analyze that piece. I don't have the, I don't have the skill set or the know-how to come to an answer. But use your own framework, use your own judgment, and that framework may be for analyzation. You may just say that stock price might be fifty bucks or it might be forty bucks, but I'm going to put a sixty percent chance on it's going to be uh, higher, and I'm going to put a forty percent chance that's going to be lower, and I have an expected value. That would be a simplistic model. Obviously, you can take that to the nth degree, but have your own framework, whether it's in your head or on paper or in Excel. Uh, trust your gut and do so before your fear impulse takes over. Historically, your fear impulse starts taking over after about five seconds. So once you come down to a gut feeling, a gut decision, you need to stick with it. And that's that's kind of the hardest part. And that goes for not just investing. That's That's life of wake up. Give yourself five seconds. I believe in that paradigm of your fear decision takes over. You start weighing downsides and other things. What is it going to look like if I invest in this company? Or what happens if this one goes bad? Um, obviously, we are risk controlled. We have analysis on everything we do. But in the end, it's trust our gut and go with a decision and keep going. That's great, Adrian. Thanks so much. If people want to learn more about you, what you're working on over at Westwood, um, where can they go? They go to westwood.com. We have uh, strategies and write-ups there. And, uh, and certainly we hope to keep producing more videos as well. That's great. Really enjoyed the discussion today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at jjcarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.